Yahweh, we just thank you for this day, and we give this night to you. We just pray that you calm our minds and our emotions and our spirit and allow us to just come into your word in your arms and rest in your thoughts and your words. I pray that you give us the understanding to process the book of Job um, as Job is going to wrestle with questions and struggles that we all have struggled with and wrestled with at different times and probably will again. And I pray that we would see your words and the true wisdom of it, as this is wisdom literature, and that we would find comfort in what you have to say and rest. Um, Because that's what I believe the book of Job is truly trying to offer us, is rest in you, despite the calamities in our life and the unanswered questions. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've been going through the wisdom literature. There are three major books, and that is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now we're dealing with Job. Job is the bigger of them all and a little bit more, of the complicated, more complicated than the all. So the title of the book of Job basically comes from his primary character. This is one of those books that has nothing to do with the Greek or the Hebrew or anything. It's just he's the main character, so we named the book after him, period. Who authored the book? We're not really, really sure at all. There's some scholars that debate whether Job is really a real man or not. And, and that shouldn't like threaten like, oh my gosh, how dare anybody say that? It could be that he might be written as a giant parable. And the same way that we would say the Good Samaritan is not a real person and that doesn't bother us, it's very possible that Job is not a real person and it's just this huge parable about God. Other people say, no, he's definitely a real character, a real person, that kind of stuff. I tend to lean towards the real because I tend to do that in most things in the Bible, but it wouldn't bother me for it to be a big, giant parable either. However, it is clear that whoever's written the book is Job takes place during the patriarchs, during the time of Abraham. That's the setting. Job most likely was written much later than the patriarchs. And maybe Job wrote some things and somebody then gathered some of his speeches together. But it definitely seems like somebody other than Job has put it all together and has arranged in his final collection. That doesn't mean that Job hasn't written a lot of this stuff, um, but he was not probably the final collector and arranger. But he definitely takes place from the patriarchs. The, the, the words he, he uses Elohim and El Shaddai a lot, which is a patriarch kind of term. Um, the, the measurements, some of the animals he mentions, the lifestyles, the cultures, all seem to be totally pre-law. He is, a, he is not an Israelite. He is pre-Israelites. Obviously, if he's around Abraham, the Israelites don't really exist until after Joseph. I mean, yes, the family of Abraham, all that stuff, were Israelites, but they didn't think of themselves as Israelites. Yet, his thinking is very Israelite-like. And obviously, he worships Yahweh. But you have to also realize that there was a lot of other people during the time of Abraham that were not Jews or Israelites, yet they were worshiping Yahweh. And that is clearly seen in Melchizedek in chapter 13 of Genesis. And there's other evidence of that too. And now there's evidence suggests that even China was largely worshiping Yahweh at that time. We have to imagine that's possible because everybody came from Adam and Eve and everybody came from Noah. It's just Abraham was the one that God chose to reveal his plan of redemption. Not that he was the only guy out there believing in Yahweh. So it seems to be who Job is. Now as a refresher, remember the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all kind of fit together. 
and they're all kind of dealing with different perspectives of this. So the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are considered wisdom literature. The book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are all asking the same question. What does it mean to live well in the world? So basically, what is the good life? We've already addressed that talk about it. I'm just going to kind of review it. The books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job are all asking the question, what does it mean to live the good life and live well in the world? Each book explores what it means to have the good life with three different perspectives. The good life is directly connected to the retribution principle. That's the main thing, the retribution principle, which means that the righteous will be rewarded justly for good behavior and the wicked will be punished justly for their bad behavior. It is not possible to have a good life when there is no justice for good and bad behavior in the world. Now, there's a slight addendum to that. Obviously, there isn't a whole lot of justice in this world all the time, yet there is kind of justice in this world at times. And yet the narrators, both Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, is going to say it is possible to have a good life, but not in its entirety, not in its absolute total justice, all evil being punished, all um, goodness being rewarded, and that everything being made right. Ultimately, in the idea that it is good to have the good life in a certain extent, sense, but not in the ultimate thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what these books are looking at. Proverbs provides a perspective of Lady Wisdom, who is a wise teacher, who believes that Yahweh is wise and just, and there's a clear cause and effect between doing the right thing and being rewarded for doing the wrong thing and suffering. So we already talked about that. In the book of Proverbs, it says, generally speaking, if you do this, it will go well for you. And if you don't do this or you do this, it will not go well for you. Proverbs allows for the possibility that that's not always true. Proverbs is not making promises. But overall, it's saying this is the way that God designed the universe. He has woven wisdom into the fabric of the universe. And generally speaking, on an everyday basis, this is how it typically works out. And in the long run, it works out that way. Ecclesiastes, however, speaks as this cynic who makes the observation that this is not always true. Life is not fair or just. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people and good things happen to foolish people. That is an obvious, easy observation that any kid can make. I'm looking around and this is not cool. This is what the psalmist is saying. God, why do the wicked go on and prosper? They surround me. They're, they're, they've entrenched me in my despair. I want them all to die, make their kids fatherless, or they're, they're, they're make them childless, and all this kind of stuff. He sees a world that is not just, but he expects God to do something about it. Now, a lot of times God doesn't do something in every case, and we know that. That's not a slander against them. That's just a fact. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. And so the psalmist then has to say, but I know you're good, and I'm going to praise you. But I don't know what to do beyond that. And Habakkuk is going to say the same thing when we get to the book of Habakkuk. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, but I don't always see this justice. And life is just random, and it seems chance of what happens to people, good and bad. And this doesn't seem right. But ultimately he says, but God is the God of the world, and he's a just God, and he's, he's a judging God, and we should just follow him and obey him because that's the right thing to do. And eventually, maybe somehow things will work out. Meaning is understood by him, even if though meaning is not understood by us. That brings us to Job. Job is the old man who has seen and suffered a lot in his life. 
and questions the justice of Yahweh when good people suffer. So Job goes further. The book of Proverbs, Psalmist is basically saying, I don't see justice, but I'm going to praise you anyways, and I'm going to expect you to do something. And I'm not saying you do it right now, but I expect you to do it sometime. Proverbs is saying, generally speaking, God does punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Ecclesiastes says, yeah, but not always, but you can still fear God and obey him because somehow he's still good. Job's going to come in and blatantly say, God is not just, period. And I want him to be prosecuted. And I want him to be brought up on charges, basically. He's good. He is the guy who has just suffered so much that emotionally speaking, he can't say the good theology anymore. He just can't say the good theology. Somewhere deep down inside, he probably knows he's wrong. And there's times where he looks like he's like wishy-washy. Like in one moment, he's like, God is good and I will praise him. Another moment, he's like, you should be put on trial. I am more just than you are. And you're like, whoa. Because he's in the depths of grief and the depths of suffering. He just says it. But in the end, he's going to rest on the fact that I'm actually just and God's not. And that's when you're just like, oh, Job. So that's kind of where we're going. The book of Job, in a lot of ways, is really easy to understand in some cases. I've read a lot over the years. And every scholar pretty much agrees that the book is obviously about suffering and that, there's, um, that Job is obviously questioning the justice of God and the three friends are obviously questioning the, the, the righteousness of Job. And the end, God shows up and kind of lays them out on the carpet, so to speak. And that's what a lot of good scholars agree on. But the real question of what God is dealing with. What is it that the, 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 the Satan, the, or as in your translations, it would say Satan, what is it that he's really challenging? And what is it that God is really truly adjust, addressing at the end of the book? That's where, like, no matter what I've read, I just feel like, ah, that doesn't just seem to fit. I just feel like something's being lost or it's just not quite right. And then... John Walton and Tremper Longman III came. And they've been around for a long time. These guys are top-notch scholars. They're Old Testament, First Testament experts. They're highly respected by everybody. And John Walton specifically just has this uncanny, he is probably the foremost scholar who understands the ancient Near Eastern worldview and way of thinking better than anybody else in scholarship today. And we don't get any more ancient Near Eastern thinking than the book of Job. And he wrote a book with Tremper Longman about a couple years ago called How to Read the Book of Job. And it was like all the pieces of the puzzle just fell into place for me. And so I, am, I usually read lots and lots of scholars, like probably at least 30 or 40 scholars on each book of the Bible, process them all, digest it, try to come to a conclusion. But I have to admit, as much as I've read all the books of Job, or not all the books, but a lot of books on, on the book of Job and that kind of stuff, I am heavily leaning on Walton tonight, okay? Um, I'm sure over the years many other people have influenced me, and they're in there in my mind, um, but tonight, I mean, I'm going to give him credit. Walton has just kind of put all the pieces together and made sense. So um, I don't like referring to one book only a lot, um, but in this case, there's no other books in my opinion. <laughs> so, so the purpose of the book of Job 
is to show that when humans suffer, they should not try to understand suffering as a reflection of Yahweh's justice, but instead learn to trust in Yahweh's wisdom. One of the things that I've begun to realize over the years is the book of Job is actually not answering the question, why do we suffer? And I think that becomes obvious as you read it over and over, and lots of people picked up on that one. Um, The book of Job is not answering. See, Job is not even really asking that question either. He's asking, is God just? Nowhere does the book really ask, why are we suffering? In fact, nowhere does the First Testament even address that question ever. And even the Second Testament barely asks that question. The closest you're going to get to even that question being asked, why do we suffer, is probably like a book like 1 Peter. And even then, he's not ever asking the question, why we suffer. He's dealing with the issue of how does God use suffering to grow our character, to refine it, to make our faith genuine and true, like gold being refined in the fire. He's mostly saying, what is God doing with it? But it's very interesting as Americans... And I'm really going to truly say this. In Americans, in a relatively comfortable, prosperous country, where we really don't suffer as much as a lot of the world does. And, and I'm not downplaying, like, we suffer in different ways. There's a lot of depression, a lot of suicide rates are climbing. Obviously, there is. But not like in the Khmer Rouge, the Hitler, the poverty, the, like, lots of the world's experience. Raiders every moment. It's very easy to start saying, but why, God? Why is there suffering? When suffering is a part of your life and everybody's life every single day, all the time, that question tends to not really be asked because it just seems like it's a part of life. Even the Hindus and the Buddhists just said, life is suffering, period. Okay, And, and that tends to be more of a Westerner, modern-day question that we ask. And God doesn't really give an answer to that. The question that this book is really asking is, when you do suffer... It's not your role to question the justice of God, but to trust his wisdom. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of this night unpacking that idea. So if you're like, what? Don't worry. That's what the whole book is addressing. The book of Ecclesiastes has already shown that the world is not always just, which could be an accusation against the character of Yahweh, as we've already talked about, and the way that he runs the world. That's the big question in the book of Job. Is God actually running the world correctly then? Is he smucking it all up and we should go to somebody else, put him on trial, or have we misunderstood him? The book of Job makes the point that Yahweh does not run the world with justice, but with his wisdom. Now, this is a big one, because we all often say God is just, and I would say amen, and the Bible would affirm that. But here's what we got to be careful of. Just because God is just doesn't mean there's always justice in the world. And that one is a hard one for us to swallow sometimes. But that would be no different than saying God is love, but there's not always love in the world. God is gentleness, but there's not always gentleness in the world. And we have to realize that because evil, the problem of evil is such a huge issue to us, and because the problem of evil seems to umbrella the lack of love and the lack of gentleness and all those other things, that it doesn't seem foreign for us to say God is love, but we don't always see love. But it does seem very foreign for us to say God is just, but there's not always justice. 
And we know there's not always justice, but we think, but, but somewhere behind the curtain, isn't God zapping somebody in some way? Okay, maybe he's not zapping them. And this is what we usually do is like fathers or mothers or youth pastors or whatever we say, well, maybe the really big bad dictator has all the Rolls Royces and the yachts. Maybe he's not getting zapped financially, but he's getting zapped with like mental illness, right? Or paranoia or something. And that might be true and it's largely true, but at the same time it's like, yeah, he could be pretty happy too in his drugged up paranoia mind as well. Now, there's lots of happy people in institutions. You don't always see it. And, and so Yahweh is not a just, it's not that Yahweh is not a just God, but, he's, but there is free choice in humanity. And this is the, now here, I'm going to go into something the book of Job's not going to go into. The rest of the Bible clearly lays out there's lots of reasons why the world is not just. There's the whole free choice. If God gives you free choice, he has to let you choose he chose poorly. He has to give you the ability to choose poorly, to choose wrongly. Because if, if you, every time that you go to do something bad and he stops you, we would say, yay, miracle. But we'd also say he forced us to be a robot. And robots don't love. And they don't have relationships. You have to realize in some sense, a lot of times when a miracle happens, it is a violation of free choice. So you're like, yay, miracle. But you're also like, violation of free choice, yay. Because someone intended to kill you, and God stopped it. You have to realize that there's all these complicated issues of God is allowing choice. We choose poorly. He has to let us follow through to have genuine choice and genuine love and genuine relationships or a genuine lack of a relationship and love, which means bad things are going to happen. But that's not his will. But at the same time, it is his will for you to have your choice. And welcome to a big, hot, complicated mess. And it's very easy for us to stand here and say, how dare you, God? At the same time, we're also trumpeting our ability to rebel against the king of England and form our own thing and the prosperity and the American dream. And it's my right to choose. And what's right for me is right for me. And what's right for you is right for you. And don't you dare judge me. But then we're like, how dare you, God? Why aren't you more just? Well, it means violating all your free will. Because half the things that you're choosing to do in America, God would probably just smash the ground. And then you would be all up in arms about that. You don't have the right to make a decision over my body. And it just becomes this complicated thing. And I know a little digression there, but. <laughs> um, so this world is extremely complicated and it requires God's wisdom. And that's what the book is going to argue is that God actually right now at this point is not running the world through justice. He's running the world through wisdom. And we're going to unpack that a lot more when we get to the very end. Okay, so that seems very abstract and conceptual. I will make it more concrete by the time we get to the end of the book. Therefore, Yahweh does not rule creation with justice but wisdom. Other books in the Bible make it clear that Yahweh executes justice at times. And it makes it very clear that ultimately total justice will be executed in the second coming. You and I are fortunate that we have the Second Testament, too. And the Second Testament promises us something that Job never had. And that's one day Christ is going to come back and make all things right. So you and I have something that we can rest on and say, though you're not getting the light and bolt now, you dictator, one day you will get the light and bolt because God will clear away all the hevel 
and he will hold everyone accountable, and he will make all things like the Garden of Eden one day. But that is a hinted at in the prophets and cemented by Christ in the epistles. But Job doesn't happen have that. And even for us, sometimes that feels so conceptual and so abstract and so distant that it doesn't always bring us comfort. Because sometimes right now, as that dictator is killing people, we're saying, yeah, but why not right now? Ultimately, God is using wisdom. And yes, we can trust in justice one day, but right now, wisdom is the ultimate guidance. The book of Job is not about why we suffer, but about how Yahweh responds, runs the world, and how we should respond to them. And that's what you need to keep in mind. As we go through this whole book, it is not about why they're suffering. The main issue is here is, is God just? Is he running the world correctly? Are his policies actually good? And therefore, in light of that, how should we respond to him? And that's always been the big question in the Bible. This is who Yahweh is, and this is how you should respond to him. And God is more interested in our response to him and our relationship with him than answering all of our questions. And if you think about it, if you've ever been a parent or a leader of children, most of the time you're not interested in answering all their questions because most of them go over the head. You're more interested in how do they respond to you? How do they relate to you? How do they trust you? And that's what the book of Job is primarily interested in. One of the first questions and the minor question that is being asked is why is Job righteous? As we build the foundation on this question, the first question that's being asked is why is Job righteous? Is Job righteous because God gives him good things? And he loves a God that gives him candy. And he pulls a jackpot handle and always pumps out coins for him. And so he loves God. Or does he love God because God is God? And even if the jackpot machine didn't pump out a bunch of coins for him, he would still love God. So that's the first question the book is going to begin to ask. Why does Job love God? Because why Job loves God or why Job is righteous or why Job is loyal to Yahweh also determines Is Yahweh just? Is Yahweh just? And we don't have to understand why Job is suffering to understand why Job is righteous. You don't know half the time. Well, I would say 99% of the time, you don't know why your friend is suffering. But you can look at them and determine if they're righteous integrity in the process of that or not. And you don't have to fully understand the suffering to understand whether that person is a man or a woman of integrity and they're righteous. The issue is whether Job's righteous devotion to Yahweh will be sustained when Yahweh's policies of how he runs the world are incomprehensible and nothing seems to make sense. That's the real issue. Right now, Job's life makes sense in the very beginning. It is health, wealth, and prosperity literally, physically. And life is good. But then when life gets turned upside down and God's policies seem incomprehensible, life doesn't make sense, and everything is chaos whirling around him, the question is, is Job still righteous? Does he still stay devoted to God? So that's what the book is addressing. Now, the structure. There are 
four major parts. Well, there are five. Um, but the, the fifth one, the middle one, is a minor. The first thing is a prologue. This is the first three chapters. The prologue is the setting. Everything gets introduced. Introduced to Job. You're introduced to the divine counsel and the question that's being thrown at God. And then you're introduced to him losing everything. And then you're introduced to his first cry to God, I'd rather just be dead right now. And that's the prologue. Then at that point, that's where the meat of the book kicks in. The meat of the book has three cycles. And these three cycles, one of Job's friends begins to talk. His name is Eliphaz. And he says, this is why you're suffering. And then Job says, no, this is why I'm suffering. And then his other friend, Bildad, says, this is why you're suffering. And Job says, no, this is why I'm suffering. And then so far, his other friend says, no, this is why you're suffering. And Job says, no, this is why I'm suffering. And then they go through that thing again, and then they go through it again. And that's like the whole bulk. Okay, chapters 4 through 27. That's the whole thing. Then there's this interlude, and there's the wisdom hymn. This is from the perspective of the narrator. And the, the, the words here and the perspective in the world make it, worldview make it clear that this is not Job. And this is what it makes clear that somebody else has gathered this together. And then you have some discourses. The book kind of then is going to end with a discourse. And the first series is Job just talking. He gives his final complaint, his final accusations. And then this fourth friend that you realize, like, wow, he's been sitting there the entire time, but you didn't know it until you came to chapter 32. He's like, like, oh, whoa, there's somebody else over there. And he gives his speech, and he's got a different reason than all the other three friends of why Job is suffering. And then Yahweh shows up, and he puts everybody in their place, and he answers none of the questions and tells them exactly how they should be approaching Yahweh. And then there's the epilogue. And the epilogue is Job getting everything back, but it's way more than that. That's the structure. 